The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good morning. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, California, streaming online at KUCI.org and podcasting on iTunes. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd, the show's engineer. We've enjoyed bringing this show since 2005. Your host is Mari Frank, a local attorney since 1985. She's a certified information privacy professional and the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, Protecting Yourself with a Personal Privacy Audit, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. Mari's testified many times on privacy issues in Congress and the California Legislature. She served as a privacy expert for numerous court cases nationwide and at a White House press conference featured on C-SPAN. You may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, The O'Reilly Factor, and many more shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Mari, what's our show about this morning? Well, Lloyd, today we are talking about all sorts of very important privacy issues, and we have one of my very favorite guests who is one of the top privacy experts in the world. She not only is a fantastic lawyer and a wonderful privacy expert and brilliant, but she happens to be a really nice person as well. And we're excited to tell you about the fact that we have Lisa Soto back on our show again. And she was named among the National Law Journal's 100 Most Influential Lawyers. And she's the managing partner of the New York office of um, and chair of the firm's top-ranked global privacy and cybersecurity practice. She's a busy woman. She was voted the world's leading privacy advisor in all surveys by Computer World Magazine and was recognized by Chambers and Partners as a star performer, which was the highest honor, for privacy and data security. She also is recognized as a leading lawyer by the legal 500 United United States for Cybercrime and Privacy and Status Security. She serves as the chairperson of the Department of Homeland Security's Data Privacy and Integrity Advisory Committee, and she is a partner with Hunton.com, Hunton uh, Law Lawyers, and their website is Hunton. You can find out more about her there, as well as our website at KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy, where you see her picture of her beautiful face, her URL, and a, a more extensive bio. And so we are so thrilled that you're back with us again, Lisa. You always just enlighten us and inspire us. So thank you for thank joining you so us. Yeah. Thank you, Mari. <laughs> so tell us, what wh- I know you've been busy. Tell us a little bit about what's going on in your practice now. It's always evolving. It is evolving quickly, and this is an area that is, um, is incredibly dynamic. And, boy, I thought I was busy last year, but this year is, um, is, is that much busier. So uh, our practice here at Hunt & Williams is just 
booming. Um, and I'll give you a sense of, of uh, a few of the categories of, uh, of our, our work in the privacy and cybersecurity space. Um, first, we are responding to um, a, a, really an inordinate number of government requests for information and also dealing with government enforcement actions. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the majority of these relate to information security issues. So, for example, uh, the Federal Tr- Trade Commission uh, is very active. Uh, the Department of Health and Human Services on the uh, health data front. And then um, attorneys general from the states find this to be a a very interesting area uh, and are really um, uh, taking this by storm and enforcing uh, in in the area of of both cybersecurity and privacy. Even the FCC, right? I mean, I've seen that there's... Exactly. I mean, even they're getting involved now, so it's it's all over the place. They are, they are, and they're they're you know reasonably new to this arena. Right. Uh, they've been doing it for a couple of years, but yeah, there's 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 virtually no agency that wants to be left behind here. The SEC, for example, also is very active in this area. So, what are the top three issues really that you're dealing with with all these governmental agencies? Yeah, so so much of this is about, as you might suspect, cybersecurity and mm-hmm. uh, the um, the ability of companies to uh, to duck adversaries who are absolutely determined to get at data. Uh, so, dealing with data breaches, um, also dealing with. Um, laws outside the United States, rules Mm -hmm. such as the upcoming general data protection regulation in Europe, which will replace uh, the EU data protection directive that's been in place since since 1995. So you can imagine that that Mm -hmm. was the the mainframe era, and uh, and now um, certainly there needs to be a modernization of of, uh, the directive, and it will be replaced uh, two years from May 25th, 2016, when it was... uh, it was put into force, and then we have a two-year period uh, during which we sh- we need to work quickly to get into compliance, and then uh, the effective date is 2000, May of 2018. So mm-hmm. we're doing a ton of that um, preparedness work. Also, the Privacy Shield um, we have uh, we had a brouhaha in October when uh, the European Court of Justice, with the uh, the stroke of a pen. Uh, invalidated the the safe harbor, which was a, a vehicle by which to legally transfer personal data from the EU to the United States. Uh, the Privacy Shield is, uh, is has now taken the place of safe harbor as, as a vehicle uh, that will serve as a, as a tool to bring data to the United States. So we're doing a number of Privacy Shield uh, preparation projects. And of course, um, you know, as I mentioned, data breach response and cyber preparedness is, is really high on everybody's list. Hmm. So when we talk about, I mean, there's privacy issues and there's security issues. So how do we distinguish for my audience what the difference really is? Yeah, great, great question. And, you know, we hear about the two terms as being often intertwined, but it is important to, to tease them apart and understand them separately and also understand that the reason they're often linked is that we really can't have one without the other. Mm-hmm. So we cannot have appropriate privacy without appropriate security of the data. Um, and that's the reason for the, the uh, really... Um, the, the hand-in-glove approach to privacy and, and security. 
um, to, to define them separately, though, which, which also is important to do, we think of privacy as the appropriate use of data, and that will differ based on culture. Right. Uh, so, for example, the way we think of uh, data privacy in Indonesia will be different from how we think of it in South Korea, will be different from how it's, it's considered uh, in South Africa, will be different how, uh, from how we consider it in the United States. So, for example, in the United States, we think of privacy as a consumer protection interest. Okay. Uh, in Europe, it is a fundamental human right. And those words are actually written into the preamble of the EU Data Protection Directive. So we, we really do think of privacy differently um, based on cultural norms. Data security is really the more objective factor where privacy mm-hmm. is subjective. Data security is objective. It's about keeping the data safe, maintaining its confidentiality, maintaining the integrity of data. Right. Right. Wow. So let's talk about how these companies are getting attacked by by threat actors. You know, I mean, we worry about the security and we worry about the privacy, the issues are getting out there. So who are these uh, these actors, these bad guys? So we think um, about the threat actors really in three buckets. Um, we think about uh, traditional hackers, and it's sort of funny using the word traditional because this really hasn't been going on for too long. But, of course, these are, these are uh, attackers who are seeking information that they can sell. Uh, so they're using data. They're, they're, they're obtaining data for pecuniary gain. They right. want to make money um, right. uh, by selling the data. The second bucket is uh, that of nation states. Um, these are in attacks known as APT attacks, advanced persistent threats. They yes. are advanced. They're very sophisticated. These are very persistent players. They will come back day after day after day because it's their job. They're being employed by the, the uh, jurisdiction, the country, to mm-hmm. go ahead and attack a system. Um, and they are indeed a threat. So APT is, is an apt name for nation-state attacks. So what they're the lo- third, one question yeah. about that. Mm-hmm, so they're sure. not just looking for money. They're looking for intellectual property, right? They're looking for uh, ways to cyber attack and maybe hurt our economy or maybe yep. even to mess up our, our grid, Right. Well, think about spying, right? Spying's gone on forever, so this is just a different form of espionage. Yeah. It's just through a different media, but, but, you know, it's really traditional spying. Yeah, that's that's the one that uh, I think is the most scary, really, right now. I mean, they're all terrible. Well, <laughs> it is, it is, because if you think about what can be attacked, it's it's our our electric grid, it's it's right. our water treatment plants, um, mm-hmm. it's our financial institutions, those um, you know critical industry industry sectors in the United States that really um, could be ground to a halt with a a, a very significant attack. Yes. Yes. Oh, that that uh, yep. And what is the third bucket? The third bucket is that of hacktivists. And so these are folks who form a loose coalition. Uh, They are pursuing uh, some ideological mission, and they are going after companies that they perceive to be bad actors in one way or another. So they can do things like um, commit DDoS attacks, distributed denial-of-service attacks, where they can just attack the the homepage Mm. of of a website um, so that it it really um, can't function and it comes down. 
uh, those we used to think of, of hacktivist attacks as nuisance attacks, but um, of course Sony, which was probably part hacktivist, part nation state, um, really uh, got us off thinking of, of hacktivist attacks as only nuisances, and and of, you know really uh, they they could be much much more significant than that. And then sort of overlaid on top of all three buckets mm-hmm. is um, the idea of having insiders yes. uh, attacking, which is a very pernicious threat yes. uh, because you know, it's very difficult to, to uh, identify an insider who has authorized access to right. the system. Right. How do you identify an insider? Very tough to do. And then likewise, vendors who also could have authorized access to our systems. Um, so we could have a, a fortress-like environment mm-hmm. on our, our own system, but then if the bridge is down to yeah. our vendors and to our own employees, there's no fortress anymore because our, our uh, defenses have been breached. Right. And those insiders could be malicious or they could just be careless and and let the bad guys in right or you know whether social engineering or just they're just doing the wrong thing or the same thing with vendors if they don't have the same quality of protection and security then and we're working with them then we're going to be hurt you bet and and of course some insiders could be sponsored by nation state actors and could uh, could lay in wait for years Yep. before they actually uh, take advantage of their status. Oh, boy, we've seen that in the news. Uh, yeah. We have. Yep, terrible. Um, so what industries are really most impacted? You know, it's an interesting question because, in fact, there's no industry sector that's really exempt from this. We've seen attacks in the retail sector. We've seen uh, the hospitality sector attacked numerous times, uh, healthcare the financial sector, of course, government agencies, utilities. So there are many, many sectors that have experienced firsthand uh, the, the dangers of cyber attacks. And, and the data uh, that the threat actors are, are going after really differs. It could be, as you mentioned, intellectual property. It uh, could be M&A information. It could be uh, R&D. Uh, and, of course, it could be personal information about individuals that could just be, be bought and sold. Right, right. We used to think that the financial industry was, you know, where that's where the money is. But now we're seeing more with healthcare, right? We are. And, of course, the money is, is attached to the data because the data is, it can be sold for a monetary sum. Right. So, so data is now the equivalent of cash. Yeah, yeah. Can you take us through a timeline of a, you know, a typical type? Well, I don't know if it's typical. They're, <laughs> I don't know if they're all typical, but of, of a cyber attack that might be more common, and, and how do you manage one? Sure. Well, the first um, and, and uh, frankly, the most difficult step is to identify when there is an attack occurring. Um, and this is not easy. So uh, as, as some very high percentage uh, probably in the high 60s or, or low 70% of attacks are identified by external parties. So we are not, in the majority of cases, finding our own, uh, on our own systems, the attackers. We're being notified by somebody else, whether it's law enforcement, whether it's a blogger, uh, whether it's the press, that there is an attacker in our system. 
and they are there for a good long period of time. The average is uh, over 220 days uh, that they're sitting in our systems without being uh, tagged as, as attacking our systems. So the tricky thing is to identify them. Once we've identified that there's an issue, we then need to figure out exactly what's going on. What is the scope of the breach? What's the nature of the breach? How did they do it? What information did they get? What time period were they in the system? Uh, And what vulnerabilities did they take advantage of? So there's a host of information that needs to be uh, determined. So typically, uh, we would, as counsel, uh, we would retain the uh, forensic investigator to come in and, uh, and do a forensic investigation of the systems, and um, counsel typically retains the investigator and directs the investigation uh, because there's a host of legal obligations that, uh, that result from this sort of an investigation, and also we would, we would try to preserve privilege where we can, right. legal privilege. So we, we uh, work through the investigation. At the same time, we're um, trying to understand our legal obligations, uh, and they could be very um, varied, and they could be extremely burdensome. Um, for example, in the United States, we have 47 states and four other jur- jurisdictions, D.C., Puerto Rico, Guam, and the U.S. Virgin Islands, that require notification to individuals, and 20-some jurisdictions that require notification to regulators. And then overseas, there, there are a host of countries that likewise require notification. Uh, and then there are other notification requirements like to credit bureaus and others. So, uh, And that's not even taking into account any contracts that we might have with third mm. parties that require notification or the SEC that would uh, sometimes require notification depending on the material nature of the event. So there are really a host of legal obligations. And then, of course, we need to craft the communications. Um, we need to, to train a call center if it's a big event. We need to figure out whether we're offering credit monitoring or some other uh, identity protection solution. Uh, we, we push the message out. We need to craft our media uh, responses and, uh, and then also um, await, and these are sure to follow, uh, regulatory investigations and the inevitable lawsuits that yeah. follow. And this is such an expense for these companies. It's a huge expense. It's oh, a huge man. expense. And I can see how it would be really overwhelming from you for you guys too. Plus, you've probably had to really become techie, <laughs> besides knowing the laws and being able to research the laws in the different places and what the, you know, what the protocol is everywhere, which is tough as it is. But you probably, you know, to even be able to work with these investigators and these IT and security specialists, I bet you've become a real techie yourself, haven't you? <laughs> well, we do, you know, as lawyers, yeah, we do need to know the language um, that's being used, and it is a very different language. Um, so we're, you know, we're, we're, we're technical enough uh, to be able to understand what the forensic investigator is, is, is referring to, but, uh, but we leave the, uh, the difficult, uh, the, the, the real tech, technology work to the technologists. <laughs> Right, but um, you do have really to be able to understand. Yeah, you have to be able to understand yeah. it though, because yeah. you're going to have to. If you end up in trial for any reason or going before the regulators, you have to be able to lead. You know the 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 investigation and be able to explain what's going on. <laughs> 
Well, that's it. I mean, we, we, we end up being the translator because right. the, the forensic investigator is speaking in techies and we need to be able to explain in English to a regulator um, what the story is. So you're, you're right. We do, we do end up uh, sort of sitting as the middleman. Yeah. So <laughs> it's a crazy place to be and I can see why you're so busy. Now, what I think is important for our audience to know, because we have a lot of companies that, that listen in and they drive by, and I'm just wondering, you know, they may think, oh, well, you know, we're not a big company. That couldn't happen to us. But aren't the same pro- problems um, affecting smaller companies if they do business worldwide and and nationwide and have, you know, consumers all over the place? Don't they have the same issues? Oh, you bet they do. Um, so on the on the security front, um, in fact, small companies, medium sized businesses are are maybe more susceptible uh, to cybercrime because they don't have the resources that bigger companies have to to uh, expend on data security. So uh, we've seen a ton of attacks uh, against small and medium sized businesses that are uh, in the nature of ransomware or or ransom and extortion attacks. Stealing data and then uh, letting us know about it and uh, asking for x x amount in bitcoins uh, in, to return the data. Um, we've seen a huge amount this past year. Um, I, I equate tax season to fishing season because, um, or to hunting season, really, right. because we, there, there was a, just a huge amount of um, of tax fraud uh, exploits like. Uh, an email coming from the ostensible CEO to the head of HR to say, "Send me all the, send me an Excel spreadsheet with all the uh, W-2 information of all the employees oh. in our company." Oh, and of God. course, it's not the CEO asking at all, uh, right. and the HR manager wants to uh, please do the his boss best. <laughs> exactly, and uh, and they send that out, and there it goes right to the attacker. Um, so yeah, small small and medium sized businesses absolutely are subject to both cybercrime and to privacy rules, which are getting harder and harder and harder to manage as the rules become that much more complex. And there are scores of countries now with full-blown data protection laws, um, and there is enforcement. Uh, So there are uh, agencies that are absolutely going after companies, regardless of size. So are you suggesting that they get cyber insurance? I mean, how are they going to be able to pay for someone like you who has the expertise, who knows how to guide them through this maze of, of regulations and challenges and notifications, et cetera, et cetera, how are they going to just go out of business? Are they going to file bankruptcy or should they get cyber? How can they deal with this? And, and some have gone out of business. So you're, you're right on this, that point. Cyber insurance is a really good idea now. It's, uh, it's not something that was... Uh, that that uh, sort of gained momentum for for the first few years of hearing about data breaches, which really sort of became a national phenomenon in about 2005. Uh, but I, I would say Target is kind of the line in the sand for everyone. Where um, before Target boards had boards of directors had cybersecurity on their their minds and on their lists of important uh, issues, but now, post-target, cybersecurity is 
number one on virtually everybody's list, maybe number mm. two, but it's really high up there on the radar screen for boards of directors and for C-suites uh, because they know that a cyber attack could be an existential threat for a company. Yes. So cyber insurance is really important. Um, now, it's very expensive, but it, it's a question of moderating um, how much cyber insurance you get, and, and certainly uh, the insurance industry has good statistics and can help to, to make that determination. Right. And there's been a lot uh, about attorneys and law firms being targets for cybersecurity because we have so much information on our clients. And so that's, uh, that's another scary thing even for the legal industry, right? Yes, that's right. Uh, you know, as I said, no industry is exempt, and, and lawyers absolutely are part of the mix. Um, and you're right, we have enormously sensitive information um, and, and also have very strict confidentiality obligations. So we're, we're, in fact, in a more difficult position than most companies. Exactly. So let's talk a little bit about the Privacy Shield, because that's quite new. And why don't you tell us about that? We've got about uh, four or five more minutes, so we have enough to get into it a little bit. Great. Well, Europe has been uh, extremely active uh, over the last uh, few months or so, year. Uh, the, the, as I mentioned, the general data, uh, data protection regulation is replacing the directive. That is huge. And then the privacy shield is a really interesting uh, development. So back in, uh, in October of 2015, uh, based on a challenge by a fellow named Max Schrems, the European Court of Justice invalidated with the stroke of a pen uh, this data transfer uh, mechanism that had had been in place since the year 2000 and that over 4,000 U.S. companies had taken advantage of to use as their tool to legally transfer personal data. And that includes name alone, email address, address, phone number, not just more sensitive information, but to legally transfer that data to the United States. And, of course, many, many companies uh, have their, their databases located here. Right. And do all of their analytics and all of their, uh, their back office uh, work here in the United States. So one day we had the safe harbor in place, and the next day we did not. Um, there were already negotiations going on at that point. There had been for several years, and this absolutely had the, the effect of expediting those negotiations. Uh, so we now have uh, what is really Safe Harbor 2.0 in the form of the EU-US Privacy Shield. Uh, it looks really quite similar uh, to the Safe Harbor for the private sector, uh, and uh, and we are, it's the same sort of self-certification regime. There are seven principles, so we are working with uh, a number of companies, almost a dozen companies right now, uh, to get them into compliance with the Privacy Shield. Right, and how is it different with government? Great question, because, uh, in fact, this the the challenge was really about um, what was called uh, the, the massive and indiscriminate uh, collection of data by the U.S. government, data of Europeans. Right. We uh, found so out that was, from Snowden. Exactly, exactly. Edward Snowden uh, uh, really, really was very much the impetus, impetus to starting these negotiations in the first place. Right. So it, this was really about invalidating 
finding um, this transfer mechanism that allowed data, uh, their words, not mine, uh, to be uh, obtained by the U.S. government. So there are a number of protections that are now built into uh, the new privacy shield that were not in the safe harbor. For example, there's now an ombudsperson um, that has been assigned in the U.S. government to take complaints from European citizens. So we have mm-hmm. a, a really good, strong redress mechanism now built into the shield. It's almost like the privacy commissioners, you know, like I'm thinking of Canada, how they have their own ombudsman as well. So that's really a great uh, improvement, don't you think? It is. It is. And and hopefully it will... it will serve to rebut any uh, any further challenge to the shield. Yeah. Well, we are just about out of time, but I just wanted to ask you, what do you think is coming up in privacy? I mean, it's been so crazy. What do you think some of the new things that we're going to be worried about in terms of litigation? Is it going to be the self-driving cars? What is, What is really coming? Oh, gosh, that's a giant question. Um, just give us two things because it's, it's just about time okay. to go. Well, there, there, are more, there are more and more privacy laws around the world, so we cannot ignore those. Data sits in 52 different places. The same data set sits in 52 different places at mm. once, so we need to comply with 52 different rules, which is mm. uh, difficult. We are not harmonized globally. And then, of course, issues like big data, where we're, we're acquiring more and more data and doing more and more things with that data, um, will we'll rise to the fore and we'll have a ton of regulation around uh, the new uses. So oh. I'll leave it at that. Oh, goodness. That's great because that'll be a g- wonderful reason to invite you back again very soon. Lisa, you are wonderful. Just give your website and it is time to go. Thank you, Mari. It is, uh, you can, you can uh, subscribe to our blog at www.huntonprivacyblog.com. Perfect. Well, thank you thank so you. much and keep up the wonderful work. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.